Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Canada from coast to coast is being criticized for its slow rollout of the COVID-19 vaccination. This on the heels that a new Leger report says 48% of us didn't follow protocol during the holidays. And in the United States, the president is still fighting. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Day two of online learning schooling for kids. My initial opinion is lunch is way better. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Jeez, I'm deaf and I can hear that. Smokers. Good job, buddy. Back to work. Uh, are you uh, on hold, Kurt? Are you uh, in class? Uh, I'm on mute. Uh, there you go. Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900CHML.com. And, uh, 900CHML. And, uh, of course, you can find out more about us at 900CHML.com. Uh, first of all, uh, I understand there's some issues with Kojiko. And uh, kids out there, they're online learning. Uh, like mine is, and you've got Kojiko as your supplier. I understand that uh, there's some difficulties. Uh, we got sent notices from the school as well. So there you go. Uh, Tuesday. <laughs> Hopefully by Friday we'll have it all fixed. Uh, it is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air. Another big jam-packed show today, and uh, glad you could join us. You can uh, address us and jump into the fray if you'd like. On our Facebook and Twitter pages, feel free. You'll also find the podcast edition of the commentary waiting for you there as well. Uh, in regard to the politicians uh, from virtually every stripe and every level of government who, uh, after telling us we should all stay home, took off and did various things, everything from funerals to vacations, uh, apparently. I guess some are acceptable, some are not, but at the end of the day, uh, most of those people are finding themselves uh, slowly being uh, out of a job as far as the government is concerned. And uh, and rightly so, because at the end of the day, uh, with the sacrifices that most of us are making, uh, this is the last thing you want to see. However, you know, uh, and we're going to play a clip of the prime minister talking about the slow vaccination rollout. We've been hearing this uh, for the last couple of days. Uh, everybody uh, jumping on Doug Ford in regard to this. But really, it's no better in any other parts of uh, of the country uh, leading the pack in vaccinations is Alberta. Alberta leading the pack in vaccinations uh, at time of these stats. Uh, 0.52% of the population there had been uh, vaccinated. BC following that by 0.5%. Ontario in and around the 0.3%. Less than 1% of Canadians uh, have been vaccinated uh, as of uh, today. Two-thirds of the vaccinations uh, are still apparently in freezers. And uh, here's what the Prime Minister had to say uh, just a few minutes ago at his news conference in regard to uh, Canada's rollout. And again, you know, as we look at other countries, Israel seems to be doing incredibly well at this. Uh, the U.S. is doing better than us. Uh, the U.K. is doing better than us. And then there's others that are behind us as well. But here's what the Prime Minister had to say. I think uh, uh, all Canadians, uh, including me, are frustrated uh, to see vaccines in uh, freezers and not in people's arms. Uh, That's why we're going to continue working closely with the provinces, both to deliver 
vaccines to the provinces and uh, to support them uh, as they need it in terms of getting uh, more vaccines out to uh, vulnerable uh, populations and frontline workers as quickly as possible. Uh, we've been able to ramp up uh, over the past number of weeks in terms of uh, vaccine delivery, uh, but uh, now is the time with the new year upon us to really accelerate, and that's certainly what I'll be talking with the premiers about uh, on Thursday, how the federal government can support and help uh, in getting these vaccines even more quickly uh, out to Canadians. Uh, obviously, that is a concern in all of the chatter in the media right now. But then also coming out today, a poll from Leger that says almost half of us during the holidays visited with friends and family. Like 48%, only 52% uh, actually followed the protocol. That's according to this Leger poll. So really, can we be screaming at the governments, whether it's municipal, federal, provincial, when half of us aren't even doing what they're asking us to do? And what is it you expect them to do when 48% of you didn't follow the protocol, according to this poll, uh, over the holidays. So it seems that a lot of people are getting angry and pointing fingers, but I'm not sure what the solution is here. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Alan Vaisman, uh, infectious disease specialist in the University Health Network, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for having me. So what are your thoughts on the slow rollout that we're seeing here in Ontario and evidently right across the province or right across the country? And oddly enough, Alberta, which has pretty much been uh, uh, the poster boy for how not to do this, is actually leading uh, the country in vaccinations right now. What are your thoughts on the rollout of this? Yeah, in Ontario, there are some success stories and there are some other stories which are not as reassuring. The success stories has been the long-term care facilities that have been very rapidly um, vaccinated over the short period of time, the last week or two, or very rapidly getting those vaccines out to thousands of patients living there, which will very quickly reduce the mortality rate. The downside, of course, is getting the vaccine out to the general population and others, and that's where those numbers come up with the vaccines sitting in the freezers. So that, that aspect of things has been unfortunately slower um, it is in the context of having to do this from scratch. It's a major, major challenge. And so there are some things to celebrate and some things to improve on. So we are hearing uh, many doctors coming out and saying, I think I saw one report that said that they were embarrassed that this is taking so long to roll out. Uh, is, that, is that credible? Is that, is that valid? I, no, I wouldn't say embarrassing. That's quite a strong phrase to use for this. I mean, you have to look at the context of what's going on and how huge of a challenge this is in a, popula- a large population in Ontario, also a large popular number of individuals living in farther regions of Ontario, in the northern part especially. Even some of those individuals actually have already been given access to the vaccines. And given the number of patients living in long-term care facilities, I think there are some successes here. So I wouldn't say that it's embarrassing, but certainly there are things we can learn from other countries, as you mentioned, Israel, where the success has been higher and trying to roll that out as soon as possible in January. Certainly a lot of the healthcare workers in many regions in Ontario have had a very high uptake of the vaccine. And so that's an important aspect to think about is how quickly we're able to protect our healthcare workers who are the lifeline of providing care to these patients who have COVID and other illnesses. 
So as we were coming back from a holiday, we were hearing that in, in just as recent as yesterday, uh, two-thirds of the vaccinations that are on Canadian soil are still in freezers. Is that accurate in the sense that, you know, as you mentioned earlier, uh, a lot of that has to do with areas in remote uh, in remote destinations and such? Is it those remote destinations that's keeping those numbers higher? Is that an accurate or a, uh, a, a credible number to to uh to use the two-thirds are still in freezers i think the the number the fact that there's still vaccines in freezers is not likely accounted by the fact that there's some remote areas i think that accounts for a small proportion of the fact that there's still some vaccines unused most of the fact most of the reasons why we don't have the vaccines rolled out yet is just an inability to vaccinate fast enough so the capacity and this was um uh, admitted by the council the ontario council leading the vaccination that the, the vaccines did slow down during the holiday period, and they did admit that that was a big reason as to why there's still vaccines sitting in freezers. And so that kind of delay has led to a catch-up period now where a lot of these doses are now being administered. An important thing also to remember is that this was the Pfizer vaccine earlier on, which is harder to administer to um, places outside that are closer to these uh, storage, cold storage. Now with the Moderna, the vaccine rollout has been much, much faster and has been going out to many more people. So those are some of the reasons to explain why there's still many vaccines unused at this point. So are you surprised at where we are, or is this where you thought we would be on January 5th? It's a good question. I guess the, the surprise is a, is a relative term, uh, you know, surprise compared to other provinces, Probably not. Surprised to other countries, maybe. Maybe you might expect a little bit more, a higher proportion of individuals vaccinated by this point. When you see the successes of other countries, as you mentioned, the United States also, they had a very, very rapid rollout, especially to the healthcare workers um, very early on. So I guess from that point of view, there is a there is some surprise associated with the number of vaccines still still waiting to be administered. And again, certainly that period during the holidays was a was a challenging part where where there could have been more done in that period to try to vaccinate more people. Uh, what about the size of the country? I've heard that as an excuse. We've just geographically, we're so big, uh, with not a large amount of people, space between cities and such. Uh, how much does that play into this? Uh, sure, that, that plays into it to some degree, but the vast majority of Canadians live in cities, and also the vast majority yeah. of Canadians live within 100 kilometers of the U.S. border, which means that you're going to be able to vaccinate the vast majority of people in rural, in uh, urban areas because they live in cities, whereas the number of rural individuals is still low. So, yes, it's true that that will contribute to some, some of the slower rollout in some of these parts of the countries. Um, but still, there is a significant lag in, even in the cities themselves where vaccines could be more readily available. And it appears that Ontario is taking a hit here because I guess uh, Ontario's second last behind Manitoba. But when you look at these numbers, 0.52%, 0.5%, 0.3%, 0. 0.25, they're still pretty small numbers, whether you're first or you're fifth. Exactly. I wouldn't make too much of the differences between provinces right now. The overall rate in Canada still is lagging behind several countries in the world. So that's more the, more the number to look at rather than the differences between provinces, it's likely too early to actually be able to tell who's very successful and who's not. Certainly, yeah, Alberta seemingly is in the beginning, but it's also going to be, a, the story isn't just simply numbers, it's also which people are you able to reach and how, how quickly are you able to reach those people. So not just the raw numbers of people vaccinated.
So how do you explain that this is happening right the way across the country when we're even seeing, and we certainly, you know, I mean, many times through this pandemic, Canadians have looked down south of the border and just shaken their heads. Uh, But that being said, we're even falling behind them as far as the amount of people that we can get vaccinated. And those other countries are are all dealing with the same sort of logistical issues that that Canada is dealing with. And we're the ones with the national health care system here. So, uh, again, are Canadians warranted in wondering why we are where we are, especially when the government made such a big deal about getting so many doses before when they were originally scheduled? Yeah, I think that's a fair statement to make. I think it is fair for Canadians to wonder why we are where we are, because absolutely so many preparations were made to obtain the vaccine. Uh, So many doses were secured by the federal government. But then the question of how it's going to be rolled out, maybe that wasn't fully addressed or fully planned out, because what it boils down to is the availability of some infrastructure to very quickly disseminate the vaccine. So having clinics available, having healthcare workers such as nurses or physicians or others who can administer the vaccine, having transportation services to be able to deliver the vaccine to the community so that it can be given. Those are the details that had to be very quickly rolled out in a very short period of time in December that, you know, that's where the questions come up is where could, where could there have been improvements on that side? Uh, also, another issue has been um, whether uh, whether doctors, provinces, healthcare units follow Health Canada's guidelines, or whether they go it alone and just vaccinate as many people as they possibly can. Whereas Health Canada has suggested keeping half your doses back in order to make sure you get that second dose in a timely fashion. When we're having issues like this regarding distribution or even supply, is that a wise move? Should we just use everything in the freezer and vaccinate everybody once and hope we get another one in time to to meet the deadline? Or or do we do we sit back and do the way do it the way Health Canada has prescribed? Yeah, when it comes to the recommendations, uh, now that we have now that we have second doses likely going to be arriving very soon or, or enough to supply, I think it does make sense to give as many as you can to as many people as you can, as fast as you can, because even if you're off, if you're going to be off by a few days, you're not going to be able to make the 21 or 20 day to 28 day target for the Pfizer or the Moderna. You, you it's probably still likely going to be very effective. And we are getting a lot of doses. Canada has secured a lot, and the dissemination is improving. So the name of the game now is getting it to as many people as you can. And likely it won't be too big of an issue being able to find a second dose or being able to organize. Even here um, at UHN, we had our very first person receive their second dose, uh, and there Mm -hmm. was no concerns about supply to that person or to those people who got vaccinated in mid-December. So... Yeah, that, that guidance. But Ontario hasn't necessarily been one of the provinces that have taken that strategy, whereas we've seen in B.C. where Dr. Bonnie Henry says, I don't want them in fridges. I'm going to give as many people one vaccination as we can. Yeah, to some extent, there has been some some movement on that of vaccinating more people um, with the understanding that the supply will be available. So kind of being more aggressive on that side, giving that first dose to more people. And you, you mentioned earlier about should we be following, should provinces be following the guidance from the federal government? I think certainly every province has taken their own approach, and even on smaller units within the province, local health unit, it makes sense for them to tailor their approach to the population they have, whether it makes sense to provide as many doses up front, or whether it makes sense to slightly change the prioritization of which groups are going to vaccinate first. It makes sense for each one to take a more tailored approach to try to do what's safest for their population. 
Uh, we all know this is a logistical nightmare, especially with the, the initial Pfizer vaccine and such. And, and, and obviously we have to uh, temper our expectations here. But again, these are issues that every other country has had to deal with. Um, through the pandemic, we have seen where weaknesses are and, and where strengths are in industry and government and, and medicine, education, what have you. Is this a situation where, uh, in your mind, it, it's just an inability of government to, it's just too big, it's just, it can't be nimble enough to do something like this, whereas we see in private industry these pivots all the time. Is it just because, and again, this is no particular government, this is happening all, across all stripes, all levels of government across the country, uh, that we're, we're, we just don't seem to be nimble enough to make these decisions. Yeah, Whether And, you know, we had the same problem at the beginning of the pandemic with testing. It's like we had the testing, but then it wasn't getting done, and na, 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 na. And it just seems like we're trying to turn the Titanic here. It's true. There is some degree of that, that there appears to be on the, you know, as a huge, as a big country physically and population-wise, that it's hard to vaccinate so many people in such a short time, and logistics wasn't really perhaps as fine-tuned as we had hoped. Um but, you know, all things considered, when you compare to other countries, we're still up there in terms of securing yeah. the doses and having the doses available to people. There's always going to be some flaws in the system, and I think it's very important to recognize those things and work on them. And you're right, to a certain degree, there we weren't nimble enough. We weren't able to adapt fast enough on, on these various levels of government to try to get the vaccine out fast enough. But, there are again, there are some successes, successes to celebrate with the vaccination namely how quickly the healthcare workers have been getting it and the patients in long-term care facilities have been able to get it in the big population centers of Canada. That, that has been relatively quickly. And now the big challenge, was, and we'll see how the various health units respond, is being able to get it out to patients in the community. Those people, you know, age 50 to 90, for example, who are the highest risk of being admitted to the hospital and needing to be going to the ICU, for example, that'll be the, the next wave right now that'll be a very important to watch how the government rolls out that vaccine. So what is your message to Canadians as they deal with and try to digest this information? I think the most important thing for Canadians to realize is that the vaccine is coming very, very soon and that we need to, going back to all of those important measures that we discuss all the time in public health or in the hospital about masking and keeping distance, minimizing congregation, people just need to hold on a little bit longer and trust the system that vaccines will be rolled out. There's already, as I said, many successes, and we're learning from our mistakes, and the government is doing a better job of administering the vaccines. And people just need to expect that that will happen very soon, within a few months, or even shorter for some populations. So, Dr. Alam Vaisman. Oh, sorry, go ahead, doctor. No, sorry. The the more we can do now to avoid transmission, the the longer-term effects will be that much more beneficial. And again, a uh, reminder, protocol people, that's what we need to get through this. Uh, Dr. Alan Baseman has been with us, infectious disease specialist with the University Health Network. Doctor, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for all your team is doing, and uh, be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about the politicians who are telling us what to do, stay home and batten down the hatches and then jump on a plane and go to someplace sunny. That's what we've been talking about since we came back from holiday. Oh, my goodness. It's uh, On CTV, they called it the wall of shame. All of these politicians, there's over 20 of them, all different stripes, uh, from the left to the right, from every every uh, uh, you know level of politics, you're finding people who avoided uh, the protocol for whatever reason. Some funeral, funeral for a friend, others just going away and getting some sun. 
And, you know, boy, oh, boy, the uh, the media, everybody just jumping on board these people, and rightly so, for breaking the rules. But now we're finding uh, a new survey from Leger suggesting nearly half of Canadians visited with family or friends not involved in the protocol over the winter holiday period. Uh, the, Le- the Leger Association for Canadian Studies poll found 48% of those surveyed visited with people outside of their households, compared to 52% who followed the rules. To talk more about all of this, Dave Schultz with us, Executive VP of Leger and on the line now. Dave, thanks for the time. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Scott. Dave, can we be screaming at politicians when half of us aren't even doing it either? Well, and it's interesting. We didn't ask if uh, Canadians traveled outside the country. I guess traveling is different than, I'm comparing apples to oranges here, traveling outside the country is not necessarily the same as visiting your family and friends, but it's right. still following and, and protocol. do the survey of all the politicians, how, how many of them visited their family and friends, yeah. because based on the out-of-country out of travel, uh, it's, it's, there's a possibility that it's higher than Canadians overall. But leading into Christmas and leading into the holidays, Canadians, about 60% of Canadians told us that we should be locked down, that we should be following the rules. Um, based on how things went, almost all of those Canadians did follow the rules. 52%, as you said, said that they did not go outside their own household for this. But uh, you're right, almost half did travel and visit family and friends. So, uh, again, it seems we're screaming at government to help us, to do more. Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Uh, why don't we have more vaccine? And when we get the vaccine, we can't seem to get it rolling uh, out. What the heck is wrong with this country when people like America, countries like America, are beating us, Who and we all know what kind of condition they were in. I mean, can we really stand back and say that when... We're we're so fatigued. We're and, and I don't blame people for this, but we're not doing our end of the bargain either. No, that's correct. And we're not. And it's interesting. We're not doing our end of the bargain, and we are also not confident that uh, we're going to be able to uh, stem the spread of COVID nineteen over the next few weeks. Sixty two percent of Canadians feel that uh, there is this. We're going to have increases going on. So we know what's going to happen. 61% of Canadians are fear, are fearful of contracting the virus, yet we're still not following the rules that were imposed upon us. So there, there's, there's a lot of uh, justifications going on out there by the sounds of it. So what do you take from all of this post-holiday? Well, I, I think it's, it comes down to an overall fatigue issue. Um, you, you look at, we, Canadians have been doing this for a long time, we are still afraid of contracting the virus. We are. We do still think measures should be in place. Yet, given that opportunity to visit a friend or family member, we're making excuses for it because, in a large part, Canadians are starting. Are the fatigue, the tiredness of following the rules has gone into place. So we know what we have to do. We're just not necessarily doing it all the time. So are we blaming the politicians to perhaps alleviate a bit of guilt here? Possibly. And the other thing that's happening is we've been tracking overall how satisfied we are with the politicians and the governments, uh, how, how they're addressing the COVID. And yet it's quite pandemic. high. It, it is. Um, it's, but it's actually over the last few weeks, it started to reduce for federal politicians and provincial. So we're starting to put a little more pressure on our governments to get it right. I think the discussion that we're hearing lately about vaccine rollouts going slow 
means that we're going to be putting even more um, pressure on our governments, and especially with what went on with government taking holidays or, or different politicians taking holidays. I think our confidence in government may go down even more in two weeks when we, we ask that question. So definitely our opinions and our positive uh, reaction to how politicians have cha- have handled this since the beginning of the pandemic is changing uh, in the second wave. It, it is definitely, yes. So how do you think, uh, obviously, as you said, the information just coming out uh, in the last couple of days about all of these politicians, I think apparently there's only over 20 of them now uh, that have traveled. What, do you, what are you expecting to hear once you start polling and getting results in the, in the next week or so after this? <laughs> well, I think, you know, I think we're going to start seeing numbers change. I mean, for example, let's, let's just look at your own provincial government. Uh, we saw we, right now we have 60% of people saying they're satisfied with the measures put in place by their provincial government. But that's down uh, from 62 two weeks ago. We may see that number creeping close to that 50-50 level in the next little while based on this. And this, and the odd thing is, it doesn't seem it, it doesn't seem to matter which political party it is. They're all sort of facing the same issues. And again, provincially and federally. Pretty much. And as you go across the provinces, um, for example, Quebec, Quebecers are pretty satisfied with Francois Legault. Uh, in Alberta, the satisf- satisfaction levels for Jason Kenney are significantly low. So Quebec, 72% satisfied with Legault. Uh, in Alberta, 27% are satisfied with Kenney. Wow, that is incredible when you think about that. Yeah. Wouldn't so you agree? It changes. In Ontario here, uh, 57% of us are satisfied with uh, the Doug Ford government response, which is pretty much on the national average. So uh, what about election? Because we remember way back when, even between the first and second wave, there was chatter about a federal election because obviously popularity numbers were so high. Uh, and then uh, obviously post-holiday and and, and a budget uh, eventually on the way. And uh, we'll see what happens in the spring. But how does this how, how do these numbers change that? Is it still uh, if you want a, a good chance of being reelected, you have to do it sooner rather than later? Well, you know, you look at uh, we did ask for uh, vote intent. And right now, 35 percent of decided voters would choose the Liberal Party. Thirty percent would choose the Conservative Party. So we're still talking a minority level area of, mm-hmm. of how it would go. So uh, with that, not much appetite for parties to head back to the polls then? I would say, I would think not. And you also look at, at NDP, they're actually slipping a little bit over the last little while. So um, whereas uh, Aaron O'Toole might take some positive signs that he's creeped up a little bit, um, he needs support of another party in order to, uh, to overturn this. And I don't see Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party calling it anytime soon. Boy, it's going to be fascinating, Dave, to compare people's thoughts at the beginning of all of this when it finally does end and is declared over. It's going to be fascinating to see how our how our trends and and uh, and our thoughts on all of this changed. Well, I, I, it's going to be a little bit depressing if we hit April thirteenth, and I'm talking to you, and we have one year full of data because that's the first day we started mm. tracking this. So it's been going on a long time. I'm expecting that we will be tracking it for the next little while, and we can. Comp- see how it all shook out over the whole year, definitely. 
Dave Schultz has been with us, Executive VP of Leger, and despite warnings, nearly half of Canadians visited families this holiday uh, period. About 48% uh, surveyed visited with people outside their household, compared to 52% who followed the protocol. Dave, fascinating stuff. Thanks again. Be well. All right. Thanks, Scott. You too. Uh, politicians from virtually every political stripe, uh, left and right, and various levels of government, uh, not abiding by the protocol that uh, everyone was stressing prior to the holidays and um, took off and flew somewhere with every excuse from a, a friend's funeral to just a sunny vacation. And uh, obviously, uh, lots of people upset, up in arms after they're making sacrifices, and these people obviously aren't. Here's what uh, CHML's Rick Zamperin had to say in regard to a local Conservative member of Parliament uh, who was caught in this net. Flamborough Glenbrook Conservative MP David Sweet has resigned as chair of the House of Commons Information, Privacy and Ethics Committee after taking a trip to the United States. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole's office says Sweet had gone to the U.S. for a property issue, but then continued traveling for leisure without informing his party whip. Sweet has also confirmed that he will not seek re-election. Sweet's resignation comes just days after Ontario MPP Ron Phillips stepped down as the province's finance minister following a trip to the Caribbean island of St. Bart's. Rick Samprin Global News. All right, let's bring in Larry Diani, former mayor of Hamilton. He is with us now. Happy New Year, uh, Larry. Hope all is well. All is well in Stony Creek, might I add. <laughs> uh, so your thoughts on where, where some politicians find themselves after the holiday? Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> so, I, I mean, this is a, a real puzzler for sure because the rules were absolutely clear. I mean, we were all told that we should avoid any unnecessary travel, even in our own local municipalities, let alone beyond. Um, And uh, here are some folks who are the leaders in our community just ignoring that sage advice. And I just don't get it. I I don't know whether they, I guess they, they figured nobody would ever know but in this age where everybody's a journalist, everybody has a, yeah. a cell phone camera, um, and uh, people are looking for news, it would have, uh, I, in my estimation, been extremely naive to assume that uh, that people wouldn't find out. And that's such a shame because, you know, some good people, I think, have been caught in this trap of their own making. Um, the new poll out by Leger, we just talked to them before having you on, saying that 48% of Canadians did not follow protocol during the holiday and actually visited outside of their family. Uh, 52% did follow the protocol. Can we sit and scream and yell at the politicians when it feels fatigue has also affected us and we're not paying attention? And, and what a great point that is, right? <clears throat> because, um, uh, you know, everybody is in this, uh, and everybody has an obligation, and uh, we all should follow sound, um, you know, um, medical advice um, on on how to behave to beat back this pandemic. Um, now, having said that, and I've not seen the poll, but what does it mean that they didn't follow protocol and they visited? Does it mean that somebody came to their garage, for example, and they maintained their distance um, and and simply uh, said hello during the Christmas holiday, which I think might be acceptable? Um, or did they have a house party, which is not acceptable? 
So there are shades of gray there that need to be examined. But for sure, however you, however you slice that particular uh, issue, um, when you leave the country and go to St. Bart's or to Mexico or to sunny California, uh, that's that's a, a horse of a different color altogether, isn't it? And and um, uh, have you know as well, um, people are supposed to be leading this community, and so they have a more of a responsibility to behave appropriately and set the right example, uh, even though all of us should follow good protocol. Do you think this, and we've asked this question a bazillion times, Larry, but do you think, and I'll, and I'll, uh, I'll focus this more on politics I- itself, but do you think this will change politics in any way in, in the sense that it will make some realize that they have to be more accountable, especially in a post-COVID-19 world? Well, you would hope that, that it might do that. My my fear, of course, is that, um, you know, the news cycle will change and yeah. and uh, the issues will change and we'll fall back on um, on our old habits uh, yet again. Um, and um, and that's and that's too bad. Um, uh, so we hope for the best. Uh, but it speaks more, I think, to the sense of entitlement, the sense of of, you know, um, do as I say, but not necessarily as I do. That makes people more cynical about politics. And that's too bad because, you know, we live in such cynical times already that we need less cynicism, not more. And when our politicians feed into that um, because of their behavior, just it's, it's, a, it's a different level of, uh, of um, chagrin that uh, is caused. So what about the penalty for such offenders? Well, interesting. Um, you know, Mr. Sweet, for example, whom, whom by the way, I, I, I've always respected. You know, I, mm-hmm. I fly a different color, um, um, you know, politically, uh, but I've always respected David. I've known him since he, he came into politics. I was involved at that time. He's been a contributor uh, to Hamilton. He's contributed for 15 years, and I sort of regret that this is the way that he exits, <clears throat> which is which is a shame. Um, but, but, you know, having, having said that, um, I, I think that, um, the penalty, somebody made an interesting observation that, um, you know, it it really, they've penalized themselves from doing more work, uh, so, which isn't much of a penalty. It's, it's, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, if they give up a committee chair, um, Mm -hmm. they have less work to do. And so, seems like a reward rather than a penalty. Um, however, um, you know, I think it's the prestige that goes with that, uh, which is no small matter. And, and that's that I think is, is and the shame as well, which I think is penalty enough. Larry Deany has been with us, former mayor of Hamilton, talking about politicians who uh, broke with protocol and decided to travel during the holidays. Uh, oddly enough, when Leger says 48 percent of us went outside of our family bubbles and visited with those uh, in other families. So uh, can we blame politicians? Although, again, traveling abroad is a lot different than uh, across town to see your family and friends. Larry, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on and uh, talk about what's going down on in, or down in the United States today, including uh, decision day in Georgia, Senate majority at stake. Two Senate seats are open there, which is why we're seeing so much of this uh, presidential election just continue on right into January. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, trying to find any possible way to uh, to, to change the direction uh, that this has already gone, that being the election awarded to uh, Joe Biden and is continuing to pull uh, different options uh, out of his hat. Uh, however, recently was caught talking with in a phone call with the Georgia Secretary of State trying to, uh, well, asking him to, to find another 11,000 and some odd votes to, to make Trump the winner in uh, in Georgia. Here's a sample of that phone call, which has caused a lot of controversy. You should want to have an accurate election. And you're a Republican. We believe that we do have an accurate election. No, I know you don't. No, no, you don't. You don't have, you don't have, not even close. There's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. We hear they're shredding thousands and thousands of ballots. Uh, and now what they're saying, oh, we're just cleaning up the office. You know, I don't think that plays. Well, Mr. President, the problem that uh, you have with social media, they can people can say anything. No, I, no, this isn't social media. This is Trump media. It's pretty clear that we won. We won very substantially, uh, Georgia. Uh, you even see it by rally size, frankly. All right. Uh, I, I think that is proof that uh, the former president of the United States, the current president of the United States, has lost it. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. He is with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time. Happy New Year to you. Well, Happy New Year to you, Scott, although I have to say it feels like the last year is just washed over into this year. Yeah, exactly. Just like the days of the week, now in the months, now it's the year. Uh, I know, I know, Elliot, we should not be surprised by anything that comes out of the mouth of Donald Trump uh, if we've learned anything over the last few years. But what is your reaction to this phone call and, and what has happened? And, and especially with the point that a president doesn't normally call a politician at this level, does he? No, this has been... Uh one of the small components of the bigger picture that's been pointed out that no a president wouldn't normally be talking to other, anybody other than the governor. The, um, there's so many ways to come at this. Uh, the big picture, of course, is that the president of the United States is leading a concerted, um, highly energized and widespread effort to deny what 50 states have now certified uh, that uh, the Electoral uh, College has now, you know, met and its its determination. And these these are not contested anymore. It was certified and sent in, and and it's over. But he is quite clearly determined to not accept uh, the usual electoral practices of America, and we should not... I don't know how to put this. We should not sit back and say, oh, well, we've gotten used to this over four years. This is just Trump being Trump. Let him blow. Uh, his t- he's almost out of office. We have to humor him along. Uh, give him what he wants. Let him get the recounts. 
but he's lost, and he'll just have to come to terms with that. That's not satisfactory uh, enough of a response when we have the sitting president not only breaking norms, after all, he was elected to, uh, to break norms, but to really violate all of the standing procedures of how America works. It's, it's a phenomenon happening before our eyes in our era. Is this about, at this point, is this about the past presidential election and claiming it's a fraud, or is this about trying to protect the Senate because those two Senate seats in Georgia today will determine the balance of power in the Senate? Well, it depends what the it is. In terms of the President of the United States, Donald Trump, uh, this is he apparently believes he can still hold on to power one way or another, uh, he has just said, look, you didn't count the ballots correctly. The ballots were counted uh, by machine. It was recounted three times. Biden said, I won Georgia three times. So yeah, <laughs> the, he is quite determined. And by the way, even if uh, Georgia did somehow or another get its electoral college votes, votes return, overturned, he would still lose the electoral college. And he still would have lost the popular vote by a substantial amount, by millions about 8 million now. So what we have is a, an extraordinary phenomenon going on in front of our eyes. The question now of what was the purpose of that? Was it to preserve the Senate? Uh, that may be at stake related to that call, but that call was not at all aimed at preserving the majority uh, in the Senate. Mm-hmm. It was not about saving the two Senate seats, the two Republican seats. It was entirely about his election. Uh, many thought that he, and, and I feel silly even saying this, changed his tone after the election and tried to protect his legacy. How will he be remembered? What will be the legacy here? Well, there's, there's, we probably should stay on Georgia a bit to come back to it. Yeah. His legacy is still being written in front of us. He is still the president of the United States. This is how he's currently behaving. Uh, assuming that the Electoral College uh, will be... <laughs> confirmed tomorrow, or actually it won't be tomorrow, it'll certainly go over another day or two, he's still the president, he still has commands of the nuclear codes. How he wants to go down in history is he successfully was re-elected, and he's a two-term president. We aren't sure what his game is here, apart from the determination to stay in power, a pure, raw determination to stay in power by any means. The any means, after he loses in the Electoral College, which is going to happen tomorrow or the day after, uh, there's still concern that, you know, he's being urged by General Flynn to use the Insurrection Act to foment violence in the street and then to declare the election uh, void because uh, the military has to step in. So there's still concern Could about we see that. that, though? Could we honestly see that, Elliot? <laughs> yeah, yeah, what, dumb question. What, what have you and I just been talking about? I know, we exactly. honestly see. So I, know. I don't believe that's going to happen. I think the military will have... Uh, we know that 10 former secretaries of defense have made their position known on this uh, and so forth. So I know the military has made its, its own view clear. However, he is still the president. He still has all the powers of the presidency. I think what's going on right now is that he is trying to preserve his options after he leaves the presidency. Uh, he, first of all, probably does think that he has a shot at staying in, but assuming he has come to accept that. He doesn't. His plan B is to preserve all of his options uh, after the presidency. Uh, we, we don't know where his legal plans, uh, you know, he's, he's got a lot of legal problems. 
We don't know about his financial problems. He wants to hold open the possibility of of running again in 2024. I think he'll freeze that field until very late in the game. We don't know what his plans are, except, I think, to give himself the maximum flexibility possible after he is forced out of office. He was talking at his rally uh, the other day, yesterday, about the vice president and how he was expecting the vice president to help him. What can the vice president do for him now? The vice president can uh, follow the procedures of the Senate and do so with a very grim uh, uh, jutting jaw. I don't know if you happen to watch. Uh, we just were talking about the president's uh, phone call, but he was also campaigning in Georgia, North Georgia, Mm-hmm. And preceded him slightly was Vice President Pence, and both of them were there, both of them giving red meat to the base. Uh, so the Vice President is uh, the putative next leader of the Republican Party and the leading candidate to be uh, succeeding Donald Trump in his own mind. That is, he's the sitting Vice President, he should inherit the Trump mantle. But a lot of what we see right now, to, and we'll come back to your question, what we're seeing right now is that Republicans are making up their own minds how best to deal with the Trump legacy. Many of them are saying, no matter what, I'm, I'm on the Trump train. You'll see that tomorrow with uh, the 13 senators now and the 100 or so members of Congress. But then there's very important people on the other side who are saying, we're not going along with this. Pence is caught in the middle on this. He really doesn't have any constitutional authority to do what the president expects him to do, which is to disavow the Electoral College votes as they are handed to him, because his job is to open the, the, the certified count from the states. Fifty states have certified what they've, uh, how their, their state went, and that, of course, would automatically give Joe Biden the presidency. Mm-hmm. But he can go along with those who are challenging it and look very fierce about it, He's trying to walk the middle path and say, yes, this has to be aired. So now we are going to permit these 13 challenges, the 13 senators and 100 House uh, people. We don't know how many challengers there will be, but at least two, maybe three, maybe six. So this, we will not have the Electoral College results for another day or two or three. But Mike Pence has to somehow convince the Trump base that he has fulfilled what Trump wants, that is, all of these contested challenges will be given a fair, a fair chance. But uh, yet, on the other hand, he has to state the Constitution. He has no constitutional authority to, to overthrow, nor does Congress, to overthrow the Electoral College. And we remember uh, when the tables were turned uh, last election, when Vice President, uh, then Vice President Biden, declared that Donald Trump was the winner. So is that what we're expecting to happen here? Ultimately, assuming my because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, Elliot, um, does Pence not have to stand up and say the next president of the United States is Joe Biden? Yes, unless he chooses to absent himself and Chuck Grassley, as President Pro Tem, uh, performs that duty. Yes, uh, he will ultimately have to perform that duty, but how he performs it will help determine where he stands in this struggle for power to lead the Republican Party going forward, assuming Donald Trump does not run again.
So what do you anticipate, what do you see happening through the rest of the week? Obviously, uh, there's Washington demos planned. Uh, there's the, the rallies that we had in Georgia. Where, where do you see this going in the next couple of days? Well, let's start with Georgia. Uh, we aren't sure uh, how that's going to come out. And by sure raw arithmetic, the Republicans should, should win both of those seats. Therefore, right. Mitch McConnell should, should stay in full command of the Senate, in which case Joe Biden's uh, leg- his achievements uh, as a president are going to be sharply curtailed. He'll have, to, uh, he'll have to deal with the majority of Republicans, but we aren't sure. We'll have to wait for that. So going forward, uh, we'll have to see how Georgia turns out. We won't know that, till that, that until after Friday, because the military and absent overseas votes are yet to be counted. In Washington, tomorrow, there's going to be major rallies by the Proud Boys and others, because they've been called to the streets by the President of the United States to stop the steal. There will be counter-protests, uh, so how much violence we're going to see tomorrow, just in the immediate future, uh, we don't know. I don't imagine that it's going to be enough to, uh, to create enough chaos that could lead to any further actions, but it's a possibility. After that, uh, the President of the United States still has commands as a say of the nuclear codes. He still can command all the armed forces. Uh, he can still, uh, we have to watch for Iran. Iran had better be very careful right now because it is the anniversary of the assassination of their general. And, and uh, if they aren't careful, they will create a cause, a pretext for America to act. And that could change who knows what. But the bottom line is that Donald Trump should be departing, will depart from office on January 20th at noon, and Joe Biden will be sworn in, and Kamala Harris. What happens after that? Everybody's talked about the, the huge chore that those two have to try to bring this divisive, this divided nation back together. But, you know, Elliot, we listened to that clip of, of, of Donald Trump, and, and man, even if you don't know much about politics, you've just got to shake your head. However, there are many people out there that believe exactly the same way that Donald Trump does. And even though you try to explain logic such as the uh, such as Joe Biden did and said, well, you know, we've counted Georgia three times already and nothing has changed. So what needs to be looked at? What needs to be overturned? Donald Trump just continues to babble. Unfortunately, his followers feel the same way. Many of them apparently do. And he did get more votes than any Republican uh, leader in history, any, any candidate, any sitting president running for re-election by 10 million or so. He, he is, to the degree he can maintain his grip over the base, he maintains, he maintains viability within the Republican Party to determine where that party goes. So one of the possibilities is that the Republican Party will, in fact, uh, divide. So one of the possibilities is that there are people who say, well, we're real Republicans. We're not Trump Republicans. We want the party to stand for something. There's already been mention of whatever happened to the Whig Party. That was the one that preceded the emergence of the Republican Party. And it disappeared. It was the, one of the major parties in America up until, the, uh, until Abraham Lincoln created the Republican Party. So we don't know where all of this is going. My big takeaway of all of this, Scott, is that uh, democracies are in disarray, that Joe Biden is going to be sharply circumscribed no matter how this works out and what he can accomplish. He will have opposition, perhaps obstructionism. He does not have a, 
a strong hand that he can play overseas, uh, which is he's uh, unusually well equipped to deal with the overseas situation. So America is going to be struggling with its own democracy, just as the UK has pulled out from the EU, and the EU is is uh, struggling with where they're going to go. So uh, the supporters of democracy, uh, the two two big ones in the world, the U.S. and the EU-UK nexus, they're under stress right now. So I think for the... For, I'm sorry to be pessimistic. I wanted to end, end on an optimistic note. But the, the, the reality is that going forward, uh, the stress test on democracy is very severe right now. And it will take uh, a lot of time, I think, to to see how this is going to turn out. Will Americans regain confidence in their institutions? Uh, you know, Donald Trump came to came to power, started calling everybody fake, started questioning the FBI, all of these different uh, institutions within uh, the United States. Uh, obviously, the same attitude with uh, with its with our allies and 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 more focus and, and positivity around uh, past enemies. Will Americans regain confidence in these institutions? These institutions that are incredibly well were incredibly strong up until now. Yes, yeah, so one of the ways to look at this is that the constitutional order in America is persevering it's it's passing its test that the constitutional processes as severely stressed as they have been and are, are and still are today and tomorrow uh they are passing this the 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 changing of the guard will happen a new president will come in the 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 underlying structures of america have remained unchanged you know the federalist system is still working the courts are still working um, but the the erosion of trust the deconstruction of trust is uh, something that's going to be very difficult to deal with. An empirical question has been, and it's and it's you can only answer this by watching, is once Trump leaves, and he no longer really commands the center, he will lose his Twitter account for one thing, uh, his presidential Twitter account. Will all this kind of, as he would say himself, will this all just evaporate and go away in the spring? Yeah. That is, will will the kind of atmosphere we have we see around us today in the U.S. And elsewhere, because populism, remember, the right and the left, are, it's, it's not confined just to uh, to America. It's also a phenomenon in Europe and around the, in Asia as well. We've got the rise of China saying we have an authoritarian government, and boy, it works so much better than these decayed democracies. Mm. We will have to see how America does react. Remember, it has come back over and over and over again, uh, including we just talked about Abraham Lincoln. They, they had a civil war. Uh, they, yeah. This was hmm. a country that actually fought itself, and if much more recently, people listening may still remember McCarthyism and then Vietnam yeah. and all of the assassinations. All of that's in recent and modern times, and yet America has persevered and come back. A lot of it also depends on how the economy works, and we haven't even mentioned the word COVID, which is a big convi- conditioning factor going forward. America has to get a much better handle on how on its uh, COVID crisis in order to get a better handle on its economic crisis, in order to then deal with its social justice crisis. And then the whole question of uh, the revival of trust becomes uh, a, much, um, a much more certain and feasible project. Always fascinating. Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Elliot, thank you so much for the time. Always appreciated. Be well. 
Yes, and I'd like to end, as we did last time we chatted with for 2021, be optimistic. Uh, and let's, I think it's an attitude that we need right now. Thank you so much, Elliot. Be well. Take care, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.